instructions, but it should. We are on a mission to highlight ordinary moms doing extraordinary things to build the ultimate mom manual. Every week, I have the distinct honor of speaking with women about the lessons they've learned and the inspiration that got them to where they are today. Join us for a conversation that will spark creativity, provide actionable tips, and celebrate the ordinary and extraordinary moments of motherhood. The Mom Manual starts now. Hello, everyone. Tara Williams here with The Mom Manual. I have such a treat for you guys today. We have an amazing guest, Jasmine Bradshaw. She is an anti-racist educator, educational consultant, podcaster, and founder of First Name Basis and a mama of two. Jasmine is going to give us three takeaways today, how to talk to your kids about race. Jasmine, welcome to the podcast. Hello. I'm so excited to be here, Tara. Thank you so much. I am so excited to have you. This is such an important topic and one that we've never dived into. So I'm just super excited to learn from you today and be educated. Jasmine, as we jump into this, can you give us your background, how you got into this? Oh, absolutely. So yes, as you said, I am the founder of First Name Basis and my podcast is by the same name and I am an anti-racist educator and people are like, what even is that? Basically, my job is to help grownups understand how to talk to kids about race and racism. So I got into it because I am black biracial. My mom is white and my dad is black. And I feel like that was just a really common topic growing up in my house because we had to talk about it. And as I was growing up, I realized like there are so many people who don't know how. And so I was a teacher for a while. I taught second grade, which I loved so much. And I realized when I was teaching those kiddos and they had questions, I was like, I don't even know if I know how. (laughs) So I started really looking into it. And then as I was just sharing about it with people in my life, I noticed that people were having the same questions as I was. And so I dove into helping people really understand what does it look like to do this in a way that we feel confident about and in a way that is not causing harm for our kiddos or the people around them. And it's just really important. And our kids, you know, have so, so many questions about race and it can feel really intimidating. So I'm here to take the intimidation factor out of it and give you what you need. I love that. And today we structured this to have three really concrete takeaways. So do you want to jump into our first one? Yeah. The first one is the thing that I love to tell people, just start with this is teach your kids about melanin. So melanin is the stuff in our skin that gives it its color. So it comes from our ancestors. And basically, people need to understand that depending on where your ancestors are from, they would have more or less. So if your ancestors are from a place that's near the equator, like Africa, your ancestors would have a lot of melanin because the sun is out and they would be out most of the day and the melanin protects your skin from the sun. And so if your ancestors are from a place that's farther away from the equator, like somewhere in Europe where it's cold, you're going to have less melanin because your skin needs to be lighter so that you can soak up the vitamin D as much as you can. Mm -hmm. And so people don't necessarily know that it just has to do with your ancestors and what they needed at the time. But another thing that I like people to know is that it's also in your eyes and in your hair. So it's not just our skin. It's what gives us our color all over our bodies. Super interesting. When that comes up, are kids just asking, do you bring that out of the blue? Like, how do you kind of start that conversation? 
Oh, that's such a good question. I love to use books because it's such an easy conversation starter. It's a great way to ground ourselves. And so when you're reading a book and you see someone, you can explain you like melanin is what's in your skin. And look, this character has darker skin or lighter skin. And you can even look around at people in your life. Or who do you know that has a lot of melanin? Or who do you know that has a little bit? Or you might find yourself in a situation where you're with your three-year-old at the grocery store and they're saying, why is that person all covered in black paint? which is a real thing that happened to my friend. And she was like, oh my gosh, I don't know what to say. <laughs> and she came and said, Jasmine, what do I do? And I'm like, oh, this is so easy. We don't need to be intimidated by this question, right? And I had another little kiddo one time say, does brown skin come from drinking a lot of chocolate milk? So if we don't talk to them about it, they make up these stories in their head that are pretty hilarious about where it comes from. And so they will ask you, if you don't start the, the conversation, they totally will ask. So yeah. you can use the books and the tools or, you know, I'm sure they'll bring it up. <laughs> Ah, that is really interesting. And why do you feel like it's important that you're explaining this piece and just defining where the color differences lie? Because it really sets the tone for this conversation about race later on. What the research has found is that kids have lots of questions about the differences that they're seeing around them. And the way that the adult in their life responds really informs whether they'll keep asking those questions. So the questions don't necessarily go away. But if the adult is like, oh, we don't talk about that or Shh, yeah. that's not something we can say, right, mm -hmm. then they'll stop asking them. And then, as I was saying about the chocolate milk or the black paint, they they can form misconceptions. And so we don't want them to have those misconceptions or the that incorrect information. So we want that line of communica communication to be super open so that they can talk to us about these things. And so when we are starting with something that's very tangible to them, like, look, people have different skin colors. I know you noticed it and it's okay to notice, right? It's not a bad thing. It's something to be celebrated and starting on a really positive note of something that they can grab onto. It's a new word that they can learn and they can look out in the world around them and say, oh, look, they have a lot or they have a little or even with themselves. It just really starts that conversation on a positive, solid foundation. I love that. You know, and I think about this in the sense of you always hear the the kids that are like, mommy, why is she fat? And you're like, oh my gosh, don't say that, right? <laughs> it's it's along those lines where it's like, how do we talk about all, all of these things and everybody looks different to have that be the celebration? I love that part of it. No, I think this is a really great foundation. And you mentioned some books and tools. Do you have any specific ones that you think are really good? There is a book called Our First Conversations. It's a different series about lots of different first conversations about tons of different things, but they have one about race and skin tone. And that's one of my very favorites. And then we also have lots of book lists because people are always asking for book recommendations. So I can send that to you, but it's just firstnamebasis.org slash books. And we have a whole one just about skin tone. And what do you say to the parent that's like, oh, I don't need to talk about this. We just recently moved, but in our last school it was very diverse. So we had Indian and Asian, black, white, and a high actually amount of foreign children like that moved from France or moved from Mexico. Like really, truly, it was multi worlds. Like I felt like I was in the, the small world, you know, that, that <laughs> Disneyland. Yeah. And, and I think for me, I was like, I don't really need to talk about this because it's not that they don't see color because they do, but it's just everybody's equal to them because they're all at the same school. They're, you know, and is that kind of a naive thing to say, or do you feel like that's when children grow up in an environment where it is, there is no minority that everybody feels really equal? 
That's a really good question. And I get that a lot. And I think that it's important for us to know that the things that we talk to our kids about are the things that they pick up are important to us, Hmm. right? So if diversity is something that's important to you and you probably lived in that place because it was, you want to be voicing that value to them, right? Mm -hmm. So you want to be saying, we live in this place that we love being around so many different people, learning about different religions and different types of culture. And so even when you live in a really diverse place, which I do too, and I'm so grateful, I am always trying to point out to my kids, we live here because it's something that is important to us and it's something that we want to celebrate. And on the flip side of that, when we don't talk to our kids about it, the research shows that our kids are picking up on the racial hierarchies and the racial social issues that we're having as little as three years old. They can start to show racial preferences with their friendships and things like that, even if they're living in a diverse place, but especially if they're not. And so when we talk to our kiddos, just like we tell them how important it is to be honest and fair and kind. Mm -hmm. Those are things that we're telling our kids, even if they're not necessarily showing us the opposite, right? We tell our kids to be kind, whether they are being kind or not being kind and stuff like that. And so I think when people say, well, I don't think I need to talk about this. It's important to recognize that our kids, especially because they're just barely starting with language and all these different places in their mind are exploding, right? And they're growing in that way. That is another piece of it. Seeing differences, talking about differences and being comfortable with differences is a really important developmental piece, especially for preschoolers and our kids right before kindergarten. What about somebody who they're living in a very homogeneous area? So either, you know, all all white or all Asian or all black, how do you kind of bring up these conversations in that way? Yeah, that's a great question. And we actually just moved from a place that was just like that. So I have lots of experience with that. And that's how I grew up too. And one of the things I hope parents can take away is that when you live in those situations, it definitely seems like it's a homogeneous place where there aren't very many people of color, but I want you to start noticing where the people of color are. So they're probably going to be at Walmart helping you check out. They're probably going to be you know, at the tire shop helping you change your tire. And what the researcher have found is that the children will pick up from their environment who is important to them and who is safe to them, right? And so if the only time they're seeing people of color is when they're in a service position, so they're doing something for them at the store or they're doing something for them at the tire shop, then they have that pattern in their mind because our children especially when they're young, like we're telling them, okay, classify this into colors or classify this into shapes. They'll start to do that same thing with people. And so they'll think, oh, well, the people in my home or the people in my church, my neighborhood, those are the safe people. And then those other people on the outside, those are the people who do things for me. And so they start to get this schema in their mind of what people of color are for and their place in society. And that's why it can be really dangerous in those homogeneous situations. So one of the things we can combat that is just giving them lots of examples of representation of people from all different types of backgrounds doing different things, being the president, being an astronaut, being an ice skater, stuff like that. Yeah. You know, one of the book series that I actually love is, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to botch the name of this, but it's, it's like our little people. Uh, Yes. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Those are so cute. It's like little people, big, no, it's a TLC show. Yeah, something like that. It, it, it's like, yeah, like big dreamers or imagination. Yes, yeah, something like that. Yeah. Uh, so I bought a couple of those and one was on Bruce Lee, which seems totally random. Oh, and, interesting. Yeah. yeah. And my son was, you know, like, oh, Bruce Lee's so, so cool. Like, and he's never seen any of the karate. Bruce Lee's the, <laughs> the actor. 
from all the karate movies and he's never seen any of those. And we, we just recently moved from San Francisco and, you know, Bruce Lee and his family were over there and it was yeah. a long time ago, but he, just hearing like the history of Bruce Lee and how celebrated he was. And, you know, he's, he's a hero in his culture and he's a hero here and kids look up to him. And, you know, I just thought it was really awesome because it was something where I admittedly don't do a very good job of talking about other. And again, because we were in an area that I was like, oh, we don't really need to. Like all the kids, if you saw the kids who come to my house, they're all different, all all different backgrounds. And so I didn't really think it was important. But when I was reading that, I realized that most of their heroes are going to be football players, which I guess are a lot of people of color, actually, as I'm thinking that through basketball I mean I, my two boys the basketball players yes, the like sports. anybody in sports right and <laughs> those are their you know my girls it's Taylor Swift right <laughs> of course but it was I just thought it was a really um it clicked for me when when we read that that one book and we have a couple other series and it's all people of color in, in the series that I purchased and so I loved that and my son who's five years old it just resonated with him in a way that I didn't think it would so when you talk about kids picking up as young as three years old, I mean, that sounds spot on to me. I know a lot of our listeners are new moms pregnant, but you would be shocked how young kids are and what they absorb. And you oh, know, a lot of that is, is like swearing, right? When you, when you start, <laughs> unfortunately, you don't say it, but you know, it's like, they know what that word means and they know mom is not, Definitely. right? Like they're <laughs> little. So, okay, Jasmine, let's jump into the next takeaway. What do you have? So the next one is to help your kids understand that race was created by humans and that it's not based in science. So this one is a little bit older, developmentally appropriate for older kiddos. So I'm thinking kids like five, six years old. But basically how I explain it to kiddos is a long time ago, white Europeans were feeling guilty for some of the things that they were doing and the way that they were treating people of color badly. And so they created race to basically assuage themselves of that guilt. So mm. it's important that people kind of understand the history behind it. So in colonization was and is very violent. And that's how the United States was created through colonization. So in order for the United States to happen, the Europeans violently removed the indigenous people and then kidnapped black people and brought them from Africa to work for free, right? Enslaved. And so in order to basically help them feel like that was an okay thing to do, they created the racial hierarchy. There's a quote by ta Coates. He's a racial educator. And he says, race is the child of racism, not the father. So mm -hmm. racism existed first. And then race was created afterwards because it's a yucky thing, even talking about it, right? It makes us feel uncomfortable, makes us really sad. And so in order to justify that, they, they decided to create this racial hierarchy. And they went to the scientists and they said, hey, can you prove that these people are lesser and that it's okay for us to, to, you know, take their land and make them work for free because we're feeling bad about it. They were not that emotionally aware, probably. <laughs> but basically, they said, can you prove this? And so there were a couple of different scientists, one named Carl Linnaeus and another named Frederick Blumenbach. And they created the different races, black, white, red, yellow. And then they had one called Malay, which was brown, um, Polynesian, like, islander people. Yeah. And so... 
when they did that, they were also working on at the same time classifying plants and animals. So they were looking at all the different spiders and putting them into categories and all the different plants, the ferns and putting them into categories. And then they started doing that with people. And so when they came up with those categories, they said, we're doing this for plants, animals, and we're doing it for people. And then they looked at the different skulls. You've probably heard around the science around like the different skull sizes and how they used to be so into that. And mm -hmm. Frederick Blumenbach specifically, he was the one who had he had 80 different skulls in his collection, which is kind of morbid to me, like, yeah. you know? but he would look at these different skulls and he said, these are the ones that are like the best pristine, you know, the smartest skulls. And then these, everything else is a degeneration. So he started with European skulls as the best ones and then African skulls as the worst ones. And everyone was somewhere else in between. So that's how they created the different races was by looking at these skulls, measuring them and saying, oh, this has to do with your intelligence. So he wrote a book in 1775, which that date is important because it's, you know, the year before the United States was founded. And he wrote all of their their findings about this is what race is and this is how it works. And these are the different categories that people should be in. And this um, Europeans are at the top and Africans are at the bottom and everyone else is somewhere in between. And then a year later in 1776, Thomas Jefferson writes the Declaration of Independence, right? He's saying all men are created equal. We hold these truths to be self-evident. And it's confusing because Thomas Jefferson was an enslaver. He held slaves and he was one of the biggest, most notorious ones. He even enslaved some of his own children. And so people are like, well, how can you write that, that all men are created equal, but then you also are kind of acting this way on the side. And it's because his other writings revealed that he didn't think that Black people fit into the category of men, right? So when you say all men are created equal, but there are some people left out of that, that's how they were justifying the things that they were doing that made them feel really bad. And so obviously that's a very long story that we're not going to tell to a four-year-old. Right. But when my kiddos ask me, like, how did this happen? What how did this come to be? I just have to explain to them that it's, it is really sad. And it was a long time ago that white grownups were feeling bad about the things they were doing. And so they created this system where some people were treated better than others based on the color of their skin. So the origin of race, does it go back to the United States or is it further than that? Well, because the Europeans were colonizing all over the world, the United States is a big piece of it. But these scientists were European from lots of different places. Interesting. I, I guess I'm confused as an adult too. Like, why? I guess the, it's why. Like, it makes no sense, right? Like, why would you say this skull is good and this skull is bad? Like, I can see justifying that after the fact to say, oh, look, we've captured these people. We have enslaved them. They're working for free because if not, we wouldn't be able to develop this land. And now we're going to justify it on this. But that it's something like that happened ahead before that. No, no, you have it right. So they oh, were it's all the justification. Yes, okay. the whole thing perfect. is the justification. And basically, they went to those scientists and said, can you prove this? And we yeah. know that's not how science works, right? Science is you ask a question, and then you try to find answers versus going with like, I need you to prove this thing. And the thing that they were trying to prove is that black people were lesser and that Native Americans yeah. were lesser so that they could take the land and enslave people. So yes, you have it completely right. Got it. Okay, that all makes sense. What age do you feel like this is an appropriate conversation for? 
Yeah. So there is actually a lot of research behind this. There are different goals around talking to kids about race and where they can be at different stages. So when they are six and younger, we are focusing on identity and diversity. So we're focusing on who are you and what do you have to contribute to the world? What makes you unique and special? And where's your family from? And then diversity is who are the people around you and they're different and what are they doing here and how do you connect together? And then when they're six and older, that's when we start thinking about justice and action. So helping them understand, you know, what's going on in the world that's unfair, what do you have to do with this, and what action can you take? So I would talk to a kiddo who is definitely older than six about something like this. And Um, when I taught school, I was a second grade teacher, and I taught seven and eight-year-olds, and um, we were talking about the Civil War and things like that. And so in order to have that conversation, I needed to tell them about this stuff because you can't really talk about the Civil War without all of that. So yeah, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked. Okay. And I have a hard question for you. So I know that recently over the last, I don't know, maybe like five or 10 years, some things um, like monuments have been taken down from heroes of the civil war from the South. And, you know, it seems like some text is being taken out of school books. I find it very odd because I feel like if we don't discuss this part of history, then how will we prevent it from repeating itself? Right. Mm -hmm. And I understand like we don't want these people to be celebrated, but by just why not keep the statue, but say that's a shamed person. Right. Like he was a racist person and had, you know, sleeves and was not for wasn't on the right side. You can be on the wrong side of history. But I feel like we're almost kind of like trying to sweep away the history and not talk about it. And I could be totally off on that. No, that's a really, really good question. So it's important to know when the statues came to be. So during the civil rights movement, when there was a push for integration, there was actually a group, and I'm escaping the name, but I can send it to you after. There was a group of like Daughters of the Confederation or something like that, that spent a lot of money building statues Mm -hmm. uh, to people from the Confederate army, the generals and things like that. So a lot of the statues that we are seeing are that are coming down were actually built in the 60s and the late 50s as a response to the progress that was being made by the civil rights movement. But the other thing that I think you bring up a really good point, because it's like, okay, we can't just like take it down and pretend like it never happened. A lot of them are being taken to museums. And so people are saying like, this is a place where you can learn about this person, but it doesn't necessarily have to be in the middle of a town that you know, that might be really diverse where there are a lot of people whose families have been negatively impacted by the actions of someone like that. Yeah. Interesting. And what about like in history books, do you feel like, you know, there's curriculums that come out every year, right? And I'm learning now having kids in elementary school and I have a friend who's on one of the boards and she's talking about, like, I had no idea how all this worked. I'm like, I don't know, just the history is taught. It's taught. But like every year, the government contracts with different groups and changes the books and the history. And, you know, I grew up in Boston and the history that I learned is vastly different than what my kids are learning in school because we're in California. And so they're learning about the gold rush. I never heard of that, but we, interesting. Yeah. Isn't it? Like we focused way more on the revolution and we could go into Boston and we could see, you know, different things from 1770, like we don't have that here. We're learning Mm -hmm. about like missions here and more people who came up from Mexico and how the names came to be. So it's, it's like, it's almost like we're learning like different history, but every year there are new curriculums that are brought out. And are you feeling like it's, 
being celebrated or just kind of being swept under the rug and not talked about as much. I think the biggest thing that we need to remember is that what we choose to have in our history books tells sends a message about who we believe is important and worth talking about, right? And I think that um, the biggest thing that I have that I struggle with is putting people on pedestals and making heroes out of people because people are people and they do good things and they do bad things. And I think that the whole story needs to be presented about everyone from history. And so there's a um, an indigenous writer named James Lowen, and he says, the antidote to feel good history isn't feel bad history, it's honest and inclusive history. Mm. So I think what you're saying is you just want honesty. Okay, yeah. <laughs> you just want, you just want to understand what really happened. You want your kids to be there too. And I think that that is something that people are struggling with because honest history sometimes doesn't feel good and it's uncomfortable, right? And so I think helping kids understand coping with those feelings and understanding that they have a responsibility and that they are so powerful to make change in our country, right? Like that you have a choice to make. You don't have to be part. Yes, this bad stuff happened, but you don't have to take part. You can actually be on the side of helping fix these things. So I think when people feel really uncomfortable about our kids knowing this yucky history, it really makes me sad because I'm like, then how are they going to be part of the solution? Right, right. Yes. So interesting. So our last takeaway is to help your children recognize unfairness. And I think people get really intimidated when they think about talking to their kids about different isms, racism, sexism, all of that, because it it's a lot. It's a big thing to talk about. But kids are really, really good at understanding what's fair and what's not. Like she got two goldfish and I only got three. Like we know, right? (laughs) With our kids especially. So that comes innate within them. And if we can continue to cultivate that in them, then they will be really good at spotting the things that need to be changed in our communities. And at the basis of all of these big isms is unfairness. Like it's not fair that the color of your skin can predict the type of medical care you're going to get or the education that you're going to get or the access to food that you have, right? That's None of that stuff is fair. So when we present it to our kids and we say, what do you think about that? Do you think that's fair? They'll be like, no way. And then you can start having those conversations. For example, we were at a nature preserve and we were in the bathroom and my daughter said, mom, there's no accessible stall. Like how would someone who uses a wheelchair be able to come to this place? And I said to her, is that fair? And she was like, no way. And so she she wanted to write a letter. She can't write yet. So I wrote the letter. <laughs> oh, the place. She's six. Uh, oh, so she's barely getting job. there. But, yeah. you know, we write a letter and we're like asking, like, how can we help? Because that's the other thing is like, okay, we see a problem. We want to be part of helping. So um, that was a little while ago when we lived in Arizona. So we've moved. So I don't actually know what happened, but hopefully hopefully they added an accessible stall. But our kids are seeing these things all over the place and they can totally see what's fair and what's not. And when you think about racism, it just comes down to like, mm, that's not fair. Yeah. Well, and, and I think having these conversations early on is really impactful because you know, I, I think about this too. There's this uproar about the sex education class that happens in sixth grade. And, you know, is the school telling them too much or not enough? And and it's like, as a parent, you want stuff to come from you, not from school necessarily, not from their friends, because you don't know what those conversations are going to look like. You don't know what other parents are teaching their kids. And so if you can start young and have the foundation, then you're going to set your kids up on a much better 
just like understanding, you know, and, and so going back to the unfairness thing, our kids understand that so clearly. Like if I said, okay, you're going to get two presents and you're going to get one, they're going to go, that's not fair. And I'm like, well, absolutely. you know, mm-hmm. and that is just one thing that is crystal clear to them. And as adults, I think we have, you know, we have come to accept that some things are the way they are. Now we are doing things to have social change. But if I told the kids, if a white person is driving a car and a black person is driving a car, the black person has a higher chance of getting pulled over by the police. They'd be like, why? That makes no sense. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, they are, like it makes no sense. It makes no sense. But like as kids, they can say, they can understand that. Like this makes no sense. So again, like it just, it feels so uncomfortable even saying that, right? So how do you, in a comfortable way, talk to your kids, regardless of your race on a topic like that? Like, how do you explain to them? These are some things that minorities face that maybe people who aren't a minority don't. And do you give certain examples or like, how do you make that tangible for them? Oh, that's such a good question. I love it. Um, Yes. So I try to start with an example that's really neutral to explain something that's a little bit more tricky. So when I'm talking about bias, I like to tell my kids, okay, one time my dad, your grandpa was taking me out and he said, I'm going to take you for frozen yogurt. And I was like, ew, like, why would I want that? I love ice cream, frozen yogurt. That sounds disgusting. Like uh, yogurt's fine, but ice cream is way better. Right. And then he took me and I was like, oh, this is actually delicious and pretty much tastes like ice cream. But I thought I had a bias against frozen yogurt, but that was because I didn't know anything about it. Right. And so I help them understand that these biases are very ingrained in everyone and they come from the media and they come from books and they come from all around us. There are so many places that we're getting these messages and we just have to be aware of the ones that we hold inside. And so um, if someone is being pulled over by the police at a higher rate, it's because because humans hold bias and police officers are humans who hold bias, right? And so one of the things that we can do is help recognize bias in ourselves and in others and talk about it and call it out. My mom is actually a psychologist and she always talks about that second thought. Like, so sometimes you'll have a thought that is really uncomfortable. Maybe it could be racist or something that, you know, makes you feel bad inside. And then your job right now is to decide what's your second thought? What are you going to do to respond to that? So if you if you saw someone and thought, oh, they, you know, I always like to use the example of if you see someone in your neighborhood who you live in a predominantly white neighborhood or a homogeneous neighborhood and you see someone of color walking down the street, you can either think, what are they doing here? Mm. Or you can think, what are they doing here? Maybe they're going on a picnic with their family or, you know what I mean? So helping yourself kind of retrain your brain. I'm sure you've heard that neurons that fire together, wire together. So we're just trying to kind of redo those pathways in our brain about the people around us. And so when you start with really neutral examples of like, oh, I thought that I was going to hate frozen yogurt, turned out I loved it. And the reason why is because I didn't know anything about it. And so helping them see that when we are learning about other people, we are actively fighting against those biases. Yeah. Okay. I love that. So, so we're not jumping into specific examples that as adults, we know are happening that are based on biases. It's more just neutral things like ice cream. 
Yes, we're starting there. And then because they might have questions, especially when stuff comes up in the news, right? Mm -hmm. So you can start with those neutral things, and then you can use it to explain the harder things and say, those police officers probably, you know, had internal bias about the person that they pulled over, and then something violent happened. And that's really bad. And here are the things that we can do to try to help. And do you want to, you know, write a letter to someone? Or do you want to write a card to the family and, you know, express your condolences? Do you want to go to a protest and make a sign, helping them see that there are so many different things they can do. And and even like there's a little girl who her mom listens to my podcast and she called me and she, well, she sent me a DM and then now we're friends, which is the best. But she said that her little daughter was so frustrated at her school's library because they didn't have uh, inclusive books. And so she held a bake sale and she used all the money from her bake sale to buy books for her school library. And it became this huge thing where the news came and she had another bake sale and she raised money for all the schools in her district. And now she goes around presenting to different principals in her district about inclusive books and like why she chose the one she chose and things like that. So our kids have so many solutions built into them. If we give them that opportunity to tell us what they want to do and then support them in it, they can be the ones leading us oftentimes. Oh my gosh. I love that so much. Okay. This, this conversation, I feel like we could talk about this all day and, (laughs) you know, Jasmine, thank you because you have taken an uncomfortable conversation and just made it very basic, easy to understand. I always take notes on podcasts. I took all these notes of takeaways that I am going to talk to my kids about because gosh, I feel like I don't talk to my kids about anything. It's more like, get on your soccer cleats. Where's your outfit? <laughs> like I have four kids. Have you finished yes. your homework? But you know, this is a really good reminder that these, these topics, if they're not hearing them from you, they will hear it from friends or they will see it on the media or they will learn something in school, which could be good or could be bad. We don't know. And, you know, as parents are, I think our number one job is really to teach our kids, you know, you talked about fairness, kindness, and inclusivity. And, and I think racism should be on that list as well. So thank you, Jasmine. Um, and you do have, well, actually tell us where everybody can find you and you have something for us too. Yes, absolutely. And thank you. That is like the biggest compliment. I love to help people feel more comfortable and confident. And so just hearing that from you means so much. So you can find me at first name basis on Instagram, first name dot basis. Join me over there. We share tons of resources and we're always, you know, on there doing fun stuff. My website is firstnamebasis.org, but we also have a really exciting for every year for Black History Month. I do something called Bite Size Black History, which is bite size podcast episodes just for kids. And each one focuses on a different Black American from history who's been overlooked by our history books. So we're not talking about Rosa Parks or Martin Luther King, although those people are great. We're talking about lots of different people, dancers, singers, astronauts, ice skaters, inventors. Like we have one about the guy who invented the traffic light. He was actually a Black man. And so it's just like things in your life that you use every day. And you're so excited to learn where they came from and celebrate the people who created them. So it's called Bite Size Black History. And we have have an awesome coupon code for y'all mom 15 will get you 15% off all February long amazing thank you so much for joining us today have a great day yes thank you 